this week on the Tech on Tap podcast, we control your flow and enhance your TCP congestion with the Scale Out Networking Team. Welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast with Justin Parisi. I love NetApp. Oh, yeah. NetApp. I love this company. Zipok. Zipok. I love NetApp because it's so funny. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast. My name is Justin Parisi. I'm in the studio here and I've got a lot of people. Um, it's it's almost like we're at full capacity here in the podcast studio. Plus, we've got people on WebEx. Uh, so I think this might be tied with the most people we've ever had on a podcast, but that's okay because we've got lots of information to cover today. Uh, so to start off with, we're going to introduce everybody in the room. Uh, on my right, I'm going to start with Raj. So Raj, if you could tell everybody who you are and what you do here at NetApp. Hey, I'm Raj Lalsangi. I'm technical director for uh, networking and block storage within NetApp. And I've been here for 13 years. All right. Uh, also in the studio with us, Gurpreet. Uh, Gurpreet, if you can tell everybody what you do here at NetApp. Hey, uh, my name is Gurpreet Walia, and I have been working with NetApp for the last five years in the networking team. All right. Uh, on my left, Sunny, uh, if you could tell everybody who you are and what you do. Hi, uh, my name is Sunny. Uh, I have been working in NetApp for almost 12 years and you know for my entire career in NetApp I worked in uh, a networking team all right and also last but not least in the studio Matt Miller hi Matt if you could tell everybody what you do here at NetApp yeah so I am Matt Miller and um, I'm also in the networking group I've been with NetApp about uh, seven years so I'm a development engineer in the networking group all right on the WebEx we have Jeff Semke hi Jeff if you could tell everybody what you do here at NetApp Hi, I'm uh, Jeff Semke, and I'm a principal engineer in networking, and I've been with NetApp for about 14 years. All right, and last but not least on the WebEx, James Wright. Uh, if you could tell everybody what you do here at NetApp and how to reach you, because you are the point of contact. Yes, my name is James Wright. I'm a networking product manager as well as a storage technical marketing engineer, and I've been at NetApp for 13 years now. I can be reached at James, J-A-M-E-S, dot right. That's W-R-I-G-H-T at NetApp.com, as well as LinkedIn. All right. So we're here to talk about uh, ONTAP networking. We want to clear up confusion about anything that happens with ONTAP networking. We also want to talk about all the new features that are coming out with networking. But before we do that, we're going to start with a general networking overview and how the ONTAP networking stack is uh, built. So to do that, uh, Matt and Sunny are going to cover that. So who wants to go first? Don't look at each other. <laughs> Somebody has to start. Okay, you know, maybe you know, I, can, All right, I, I can start. So uh, when I first joined NetApp, uh, we have uh, two different systems, a seven mode and C mode. And then when you converge that system into a single image, we start with the three networking stacks. And then, you know, Maybe one year later, after we converge, uh, the, the, we, we, after we start converging the network stack, we were down to two network stack, which were SK stack and FreeBSD stack. So SK stack is mainly for data traffic such as NFS, SIPs, iSCSI, uh, NDMP, and uh, FreeBSD stack is used mainly for management traffic such as SSH, JP. Etc. So basically, the all major services that NetApp provides uh, were served by uh, SK Stack, which is NetApp home homegrown system. Uh, and then, because you know it was uh, NetApp homegrown system, uh, everything that we want wanted to have uh, had had to be implemented by us. Uh, which you know, it, you know, the networking team in NetApp is relatively small, you know, of course compared to you know all the all this networking community. So, um, so to catch up, you know, the whatever advances made by uh, networking community, we uh, switch to single networking stack, which is now FreeBSD. So the project that, that we did to uh, unified network stack is called Fusion. So through Fusion, 
we are now down to a single network stack, which is FreeBSD. And then we use that FreeBSD stack for everything, uh, data, and NFS, SIPS, ISCSI, and management traffic, such as SSH, JP, uh, HTTP. So by switching to single network stack, you know, managing the stack, the s- stack code is simpler because now we have a less code to manage, less code to worry about bug. Also, you know, we can take, you know, the whatever the, the advances made by networking community you know, easier than before. So that's that's where we are right now. Yeah, so as opposed to having a proprietary networking stack on top of a open source network stack, we now have the open source network stack working in our favor. That's correct. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, Matt, anything to add? Um, no, I think I think Sunny covered it uh, pretty well. Um, you know, having the FreeBSD st- network stack, as you mentioned, has given us a good chance to get uh, better velocity with uh, features, um, and also to you know stay current with things like TCP RFCs and stuff that we may not have had the bandwidth to in the past. So, is it fair to say that uh, you know this Fusion project has laid the foundation for modern networking feature introduction in ONTAP uh, or leveraging open source? in terms of modern features that networking community works on in ONDAP. Exactly. Yes. Did you have some examples to quote? Uh, yeah, I, I think you know, we will we'll talk about uh, those, you know, the features that we could easily bring in, such as VIP, uh, TCP black hole detections, and various TCP congestion control algorithms that you know, network community added recently. Okay, excellent. Yeah, we'll, call, we'll cover those features in a little bit. But first, I'm going to touch on what you said, Raj, about modernizing the network stack. Correct. So go into a little more detail about how we're doing that today. So um, our vision, uh, vision spans from simplicity of network setup and configuration, providing modern REST APIs for management, uh, you know, uh, getting modern implementations of TCP congestion and flow control, and also looking into things like low latency, high throughput RDMA protocols. And finally, to uh, security implementation for inter and intra cluster communication using such as uh, protocols such as TLS and IPsec. So that's a kind of a framework for what we want to do in networking. And as, uh, as, uh, as brought up earlier by Sony and Matt, we have looked into a few features already that are implemented, such as VIP and TCP black hole detection. We are actively looking into um, TCP congestion and flow control mechanisms to be leveraged from um, uh, FreeBSD implementation. That's currently in the thought process. So did that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, yeah You absolutely. want to elaborate for Well, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. so let's, let's talk a little more. So yeah. the TCP con- uh, congestion and, and uh, flow control stuff, what sort of things would that help? And you know, having it in the BSD stack, what does that? What benefits do we get out of that? So, the FreeBSD community recently added uh, several new modern TCP congestion control algorithms. Um, without um, Fusion, I would say we would have stuck to the uh, old uh, TCP congestion control algorithm, which is New Reno, which is more than 10 to 15 years old. So uh, yeah, key point, never name your algorithm new because it will become old <laughs> eventually. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what you mean. It's not, everything stays the same, doesn't it? Yeah, anyway, so yeah. so uh, we, it was almost uh, for free for us to bring uh, those new TCP contention algorithms. So we just need to do some NetApp customization, especially from the CRI point of view, um, which is on the horizon. Uh, so other than that, kind of a NetApp um, CRI work, actually we we will be able to bring that in almost for free. In near future, we will switch to uh, Cubic, uh, which is quite a de facto standard TCP congestion control algorithm in the community. So that's one example. Maybe uh, changing the topic just a little bit. Uh, we forgot to mention about IPsec. So the IPsec is a huge component. And then we 
couldn't have it in SK Stack because it takes so uh, many engineering hours and a month to bring that in. Uh, with the fusion, we, we the IPsec is there already there, so you know we already have IPsec supported in networking stack. Yeah, that's that's another added benefit of having the BSD stack is the faster development of features because the entire community is working together to create these, and it's just not on the burden of one company. Yes. Yeah, it brings innovation to the market at an accelerated speed and benefits our customers community. So, hey, hey Jeff, um, question for you. Uh, so, as far as this modernization of the networking stack goes, I mean, what sort of benefits are we getting out of this? Well, there's all the benefits that you mentioned, of course, but we also get uh, new drivers faster so that uh, we can roll out uh, new equipment uh, with new NICs faster. Um, it's much easier for vendors to uh to develop new drivers for a standard operating system rather than a proprietary one. So that's one of the areas. Um, and then all of the things that uh, things like TCP congestion control help. Uh, there are areas where, um, you know, as we roll out new platforms and customers have a mix of old and new uh, platforms in their cluster, uh, the newer platforms, of course, outperform the old, and uh, so there can be yeah, a disparity in in the rates at which they communicate with each other, and so doing things like uh, taking advantage of enhanced TCP congestion control can help us to uh, um, have those perform better uh, with the the great bandwidth disparity that they've got. So, what exactly is enhanced TCP congestion control? I mean, we've said it a few times, and I, I kind of have a rough idea of what it might be. But what does that entail, and what sort of things does it bring to the table? So with TCP congestion control, the idea is to try to maximize your performance while not overrunning the network. Um, and so different algorithms will try to achieve that in different ways. Um, so some of the older algorithms are more sensitive to uh, overflowing a queue in which uh, they, they drop lots of packets at a time, and then they have to, to go back and slow start again. Uh, after a timeout. And so a lot of the newer algorithms will try to manage those queues um, and be more sensitive to it so that they uh, either uh, only drop one packet instead of an entire burst uh, or can just handle those a lot better. And so um, each of the new congestion control algorithms has different ways of handling that. And um, Sunny's been looking into uh, different ways that uh, one algorithm over another might better suit our needs in different environments. So, uh, for example, on our internal cluster network, um, we may choose one algorithm versus uh, an algorithm that we may choose for the external uh, client-facing networks. And also for MCC environments where you have longer distances, maybe we may yes, deploy right, a... right, over yeah. a WAN. We're talking like MCC over IP? Absolutely. Right? Yep, absolutely. absolutely. Yes. And snap mirrors. Yeah. Yeah, and, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So these long distances for when we want to make sure this connection can you know, not only perform, but also be very resilient and very, uh, I guess, error-proof. Absolutely. And then we make the best use of the bandwidth available. Um, we're not idling for uh, waiting for request or response to go back. We are filling the pipe as much as we can, taking advantage of these uh, congestion control algorithms. Yeah, and, and on the bandwidth note, and, you know, that's another reason why you might want to think, have things like TCP-enhanced uh, congestion control because you have 100-gig Ethernet interfaces now and there's a lot more flowing through these pipes that need to be you know, managed. Yeah, I think we, uh, we have a case where we were looking into deploying some of these congestion control algorithms for our advantage within the cluster. We have platforms which can operate at 10-gig, 40-gig, and 100-gig. We'll be introducing platforms with 100-gig pretty soon. So when we put these things together, uh, they should work harmoniously at the same time, exploit every uh, byte of bandwidth available on our cluster backbone. So deploying these things along with uh, balancing the performance within, within the internals of the node uh, network stack would work for our benefit. Uh, Sony has worked on this intensively, so he can add anything more that he thinks it's appropriate. Yeah, you, you know, Jeff and Raj covered almost everything. So each congestion control algorithm 
uh, has different uh, pros and cons and may can be used uh, in different uh, environment. So we have a, a nice concept of IP space, which is basically the segregated network. So if, uh, then based upon each network's characteristics, we can pick and choose whatever the best congestion algorithm for that IP space. So, oh, okay. So you can have algorithms per IP, IP space, yes. essentially, right? So do we automatically select that based on the incoming traffic, or is that something that the admin has to set? So admin has to set based upon you know, their expectation and then the provisions. Is this already there? Uh, it'll, it'll come. Okay, in, so it's not there already. All right, so so it, we are experimenting and investigating which is the best way to model these things. So as I said, this is in our future plans. So we're working and these things are not finalized. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Just wanted to clarify that because it sounds cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, in, in theory, um, if an admin is trying to set this, are we going to be setting this with friendly names like, you know, this type of workload, this type of workload, or is it going to be more like network-centric language around how we set those IP spaces up? Uh, I think if I look at it broadly, there are three variants, right, of use cases uh, for this congestion there is front-end traffic. We don't have complete control on that because it's host-specific. And we have cluster inter, uh, internal traffic. And then you have long-distance traffic, possibly between um, snap mirror clusters or, or MCC clusters, right? So, you know, we could possibly design something that works for these three cases, different cases. We can deploy a congestion control algorithm for front-end cluster and then these... Uh, these uh, DR use cases, right? Uh, that's one example. But as I said, we are investigating these things, uh, and the result of the investigation is not done yet. So, okay, we'll, wait, we'll, we'll we won't spoil any more of the <laughs> the surprises. Exactly. So, James, um, you're the networking TME. Um, what was new in nine point four, nine point five that we want to cover here? So the the. The biggest changes or uh, most important um, addition that we've added to our portfolio is VIP. So uh, I can give a little bit of background. So in traditional data centers, uh, they're characterized as basically three tier, layer two and layer three configurations. Uh, so servers are connected to access switches, which are connected to aggregator switches, which in turn are connected to core switches or routers, um, which support hundreds and possibly thousands of nodes. Um, most of the traffic um, is, is generally um, north and southbound in and out of the data center, um, which is fine for some environments, but in modern data centers that are characterized by uh, purely layer three environments that are uh, spine and leaf, with um, mesh topology um, and top of rack switches, um, or excuse me, top of rack routers, um, that the old legacy environment would not work for them. And that's where VIP comes in. And NetApp has responded um, to massively scaled data centers by developing uh, VIP, which is based on border gateway protocol. Uh, which is a routing protocol. And from a high level, it decouples the dependence of, for ONTAP of uh, data lift failover from a single um, subnet um, or broadcast domain um, from physical ports to enable routable failover to top of rack routers instead of top of rack switches, um, which may be in a different subnet. So I'll switch over to Gurpreet to go into the details. Yeah. Gurpreet, you're on. Yeah. Uh, yeah thanks, <laughs> Tag, James. you're in. <laughs> yeah, thanks, James. Yeah, let me try to uh, paint a picture here. So in the traditional uh, data lifts that we have, you can envision it like we have a lift, which is basically an IP address hosted on a port, and the lift belongs to a vServer or SVM. 
So all the traffic, um, if we take out the asymmetric routing part, all the traffic will be sent and received on the same port. So with this uh, massively scalable data centers or the next generation data center, as uh, Jay mentioned, we are going to have like each rack is going to have a top of the rack router and all the uh, all the nodes in the rack are going to be connected to uh, top of the rack router. And ideally, there'll be more than one links to the top of the rack router and there'll be uh, ECMP enabled on the top of uh, the the rack router, which means that uh, in idle case, the, there should be multiple paths on which the top of the router can reach uh, a given node. But in the case of traditional data lift, we can only receive uh, traffic on a single port. So the requirement here is that we should be able to receive traffic for the same IP on all the possible ports in an IP space. What that will do is that it will increase more, uh, increase the bandwidth for the incoming traffic. We will be able to handle much more traffic for the same IP address. So this has been achieved by introducing the virtual IP, which is which we call the VIP. So VIP, it does not belong to a single port, or you can say it belongs to all the ports in an IP space. So you can send and receive traffic for the virtual IP on all the ports in an IP space. So how this has been achieved is that we uh, create a virtual IP on a pseudo port. So we the system creates a pseudo port when you enable virtual IP and we host that lift on a pseudo port. And then we have uh, the BGP lift. So BGP is the routing protocol which is generally used in the data centers or I'll say most commonly used routing protocol in the data centers. And we use that protocol to uh, announce the location of the VIP lifts to the top of the rack routers. So we're going to set up uh, the BGP session using the BGP lifts, which are hosted on the physical ports to the top of the rack router. And then using BGP updates, we are going to send uh, the routes to the top of the rack router so that uh, the top of the rack router can populate its routing table and add the routes for VIP. So for the router, the ONTAP node will act just like any other router with the VIP as a... Uh, network which is served by that router. So these BGP lists, do they have their own unique MAC addresses or are they routing some other way? Yeah, so these BGP lifts are hosted on uh, the actual physical port, so they are going to have their own IP addresses and the MAC address of the port. So of the of the actual port. So what if you do these BGP lifts span multiple ports in a node? I've seen in the diagrams I've seen it makes it look like the BGP lift is is basically the node. So uh now think about this. So BGP lift is actually pinned to a particular port. So the scope is just the port. So if you have multiple ports in, say, different subnet or same subnet, then ideally you'll have multiple BGP lifts, one on each port, and it's going to have a BGP session with the router. Okay. And what about the VIP lifts? Are they spanning multiple BGP um, lifts themselves? I mean, how are those going to... So VIP, uh, v- the VIP is... Uh, per IP space. You have a lift per V server on a node. So it's per V server per node. And all the BGP lifts, sorry, all the VIP lifts for uh, the IP space will be hosted on a single uh, pseudo device. So if you have multiple V servers, say you scale out, you add more tenants in, a, in an IP space, then all those VIP lifts are going to be hosted on the same port. And if you add more IP spaces, then we are going to create more ports, more virtual ports. Okay. So what are some benefits of having this particular architecture within ONTAP? So the benefit is, as James suggested, it lets us play into this next generation data centers. So with the next generation data centers, um, if uh, we have to scale out, we'll add a more uh, racks, so, which means we are going to add more leaves. So that essentially means that the ONTAP node in a cluster will be in an entirely different rack, which will have its own subnet. So traditionally, we fail over the data lifts only within the same subnet or the broadcast domain. So we there's no provision right now to fail over the lift from one rack to another rack if they are in a different network. So with VIP, we'll be able to achieve that. So the lifts can fail over from one subnet to a different subnet. 
So with those failing over to different subnets, I mean, as an admin, I'd have to make sure those subnets can talk to other clients, right? You yeah, have- that's that's the whole crux of the leaf and spine network. So every every leaf is connected to every other leaf through the spines. Right. So when I turn this on, does that automatically kick in? I mean, does it automatically fail over between subnets? Do I have to tell it to do that? Set up failover groups? How does this all work? Yeah, so we have some system-defined policies and uh, you can go ahead and change them, but the default behavior is like you have a BGP sessions and we are going to have BGP sessions on all the nodes and if uh, all the BGP sessions on one node fail, so there's no way for the router to reach the VIP. Then we're going to move the VIP to some other node uh, in the cluster in the same IP space that has at least one uh, BGP session up and running. Okay. And I ask this because it sounds like it could be a situation where I set this up and maybe I don't have my networking all squared away and I have subnets that maybe can't talk to other things. And I fail over to the subnet, and maybe I experience an outage because of this. Is that no? See, that's the beauty here. So uh, this is all dynamically handled. So when you add, a, when a VIP is created on a node, we announce the VIP through BGP to the top of the rack router, and then the top of the rack router is going to announce that same route to uh, to the leaf uh, to the to the core routers. So in a way, it's going to be propagated to the whole network dynamically. So you don't have to like add any any manual routes on any routers. Okay, that's cool. So that, that way we don't have to worry so much about the network as a storage administrator. Because you know, as a storage administrator, generally, you don't have control over that domain. Correct. It's, it's all done dynamically. So you don't need to worry about the place where you're going to move the lift and you forget to add a route and there'll be outage. So this all is handled dynamically. Raj, would you say this is part of modernization of our network? Absolutely, absolutely. And he was he was he was waiting for it. I know it. He wanted to say it. I wanted to say a couple other things uh, when I'm talking about modernizing the network. Right. Uh, in last few years, three to four years to be precise, the media latencies have uh, come from a hard disk, which was in milliseconds, to hundreds of microseconds flash media. And in near future, we'll also see media which can respond in tens of microseconds. So milliseconds, hundreds of microseconds to tens of microseconds. This is, this is really putting a lot of pressure on the data plane in, in ONTAP, both software elements as well as the network speeds and feeds. So what this means for inter-cluster, intra-cluster communication is we have bigger pipes and we cannot tolerate software latencies, right? So what FreeBSD gives us is bring cluster, uh, RDMA protocol to cluster, inter-cluster, intra-cluster communication um, uh, at, a faster, at a faster pace. So for example, we are leveraging OFED stack, RDMA stack from FreeBSD. We are asking our RNIC vendors, uh, RDMA NIC vendors, to write drivers for us. So we are leveraging their code, FreeBSD code, to bring cluster RDMA to action at a faster rate than otherwise we would have been, um, if we we hadn't brought in FreeBSD, it would have been taken longer time for us. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Opens up the door for a lot of possibilities. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, not exactly. just on the, you know, the networking side of the data plane, but also on the back end for the cluster, which brings even more possibilities absolutely. for other things. Absolutely. So we also had another feature that got added in ONTAP 9.5. Uh, Jeff, could you tell us a little bit about TCP black hole detection and what that entails and why we would need it? Sure. So um, when you have networks, uh, the networks have uh, an MTU associated with them, a maximum transmission unit, and that defines the, the size of the packets that you can send over it. And um, you have a number of different devices between uh, the two uh, endpoints on your network, and those devices each uh, will interface to a different network. So as you're going from the server to the client or client to the server, uh, you might traverse a number of different routers and, and a number of different networks. Each of those networks might have a different MTU on it, and uh, the middle MTUs are not known to the endpoints. Uh, there are some protocols, uh, like ICMP will give you messages when uh, you have a packet that's too large to go into a network. But on some networks, 
those ICMP messages are disabled for security reasons. So when that happens, if you have a large packet that's trying to go over a network that has a small MTU, um, that packet will get silently dropped. And uh, this ends up uh, causing lots of hard-to-diagnose problems. Uh, we sometimes will see it if you're going over a VPN where the VPN um, encapsulation uh, takes a, a few extra bytes of the header uh, and results in a smaller MTU size. So what uh, TCP black hole detection does is it uh, notices when a number of packets have been dropped in a row and it will try to retransmit those packets with a smaller size. It'll break them up into smaller packets. And uh, if that's successful, then it, it stays with that smaller MTU. Uh, and so w the term black hole detection is that it's detecting these places where uh, you're silently dropping these packets. So the end result is that you have um, more adaptability and resiliency and uh, fewer hard, harder to diagnose problems. Yeah, and ultimately, I mean, what happens in these situations is, you know, storage admin gets a, a, a call from their end user and the end user is like, hey man, performance is terrible. So the storage admin then goes down this rabbit hole of performance, right? They're trying to figure out where the problem is. They don't have any visibility into the network often, so they don't have that ability to see that there's a mismatch somewhere in the network. And even if they did, even the network engineers have a problem finding mismatches of MTUs, right? Yeah, they definitely do. And then, uh, you know, without MTU detection or black hole detection, um, your options for adapting to it are actually uh, limited anyway because you can change the MTU of your local interface, but that local interface is communicating not only with that other single endpoint that's traversing this uh, network with a small link. So then you can end up having similar problems when you're communicating with a, a different uh, host over a different network. So the black hole detection takes effect for individual connections, which then allows you to make this adaptation only when it's necessary. Okay, so TCP black hole detection is just one of those examples of modernizing that network stack to allow you more resiliency as well as the ability to adapt faster to problems in the network. That's correct. I mean, because yes. the network's never the problem. Oh, right? never. Never. <laughs> never the problem. <laughs> Anyway, tell me yeah. about this network yeah. setup and configuration. What is this? See, when you uh, just I'll, I'll, without specifics of the feature because we are still not releasing this feature. So I'll give you some example, right? And then Jeff Samke can add it. So we create lifts today, and then we want to create lifts in subnets that can reach the host, right? And that's that puts pressure on the user to figure out, hey, which port is connected to which subnet so that I have the host connectivity if I create the lifts on a given port that connects to that subnet. Um, there are other cases where, you know, if, if a lift of a different type, right? Lift has iSCSI type, data type such as uh, NFS and SIFS, and in future we'll have things like uh, front-end RDMA and stuff. So, you know, will lift, having a, a lift for type will kind of pigeonhole that lift to a particular use case. What if you wanted to do multiple protocols on a given lift? The combinations become too much. So there are, we're kind of looking into two features, such as lift services, which kind of policy-based provisioning of the lifts, which tells policies dictate what kind of traffic is done, what kind of traffic is blocked, and such, right? You can define the policies per lift, per, per lift basis. And then also provisioning, when you're provisioning Lyft, you want to make it as automatic as possible for users. You just just need to create a Lyft and state the intent of what that Lyft is trying to do. The rest of the networking mechanisms will take care of it, right? So that's kind of a generic statement. Uh, Jeff, you, do you have anything to be added? Yeah, yeah. So on Lyft services, um, you know, some of the things that uh, it's intended to do when when it comes about is going to be um, allowing us also to reduce the number of IP addresses that are required. Uh, some of the feedback that we've gotten from customers is that in a lot of environments, um, having to assign uh, so many IP spaces is a bit of a burden uh, for them, particularly in a data center where the storage administrator and the network administrator are not uh, the same groups. 
Uh, and then, so the other thing that Lyft Services does in addition to that, and, and Raj alluded to this as well, is that um, it gives you finer granularity in what Lyfts will be able to do. Um, so uh, you, you may be able to, instead of having, say, just a generic uh, management Lyft, you might be able to say, this is the Lyft that I want something like ASUPS to go out. Um, and so those are the kind of things that, that we're thinking about and actively working on. Okay, so this is this is future stuff, not quite pegged to a release. We're just kind of making sure that we're you know trying to accommodate everyone there, right? That's right. right. So I, I will ask this: um, Have we fixed the problem where we can't change data protocols on a lift yet? <laughs> uh, that's one of the things that we're working on. Um, so I wouldn't say that it's fixed yet. Okay, just want to cover that right there. Yeah, lift yeah. service is a good good way to. Yeah, if you want to change something, you change the policy on the lift. Yeah, there or you update go. the policy. That yeah. will give you that flexibility. And so the other thing I wanted to add to what Raj was saying um, about uh, making it easier to configure things as well. So we've started work already, um, I believe several releases ago, in um, updating System Manager and helping in some of the, the workflows mm-hmm. that are involved there where um, – you know, some of this is done, some of it we're still working on, but trying to uh, intelligently pre-populate fields where possible, um, or if there are things that we can um, completely automatically configure, then we're doing that. And so that the work that's involved there is kind of a continuum, and we have a lot more uh, that hasn't shipped yet that we continue to work on, but um, that's an area where we want to continue to grow and develop the product to just continue to make it easier and easier for customers to deploy ONTAP. Would this be something like a DHCP within the ONTAP stack where we're assigning IP addresses based on a subnet you specified? It's a lot of different things. Um, Some of it will be external information like that. Some of it will be... um, looking into what configurations have already been applied within the, the cluster and uh, can we make uh, very good guesses based on what's already been configured to um, anticipate what uh, the next configurations will be. Um, some of it will be things like uh, just following common conventions. Uh, and so most of the places where we pre-populate anything, uh, the customer would be able to override it uh, so that we're just trying to make it easier for them, but not trying to force them into any particular um, configuration. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about use cases, because one of the questions I get asked a lot about BGP is, you know, do I need this as a mom-and-pop shop, or do I need this as a standard IT organization, or is this only for the big cloud providers? So, Gapreet, where does BGP fit in? Does it fit in everywhere, or does it fit in only certain use cases? Uh, so the most common use case will be where you are using the leaf and spine topology in your data center, which will be most of our big customers will be using that. Uh, but you can also leverage some, like there's one uh, feature which we are uh, introducing in 9.5 is called the multipath routing, which can be used with or without the VIP, but to get the maximum advantage out of it, you have to use it with BGP. Sorry, with VIP. So how it works is that traditionally, if uh, we have multiple routes uh, to the same destination, we just pick one of the very first route or one of the routes and the others are left as a backup. So what that means is that uh, we are underutilization, underutilizing the, the number of uh, interfaces on which we can send the same traffic. So with the, the multipath routing, if you can enable the multipath routing uh, using the command line interface, what that does is it load balances the outgoing traffic. So if we have multiple routes to the same destination, then we can uh, load balance the traffic amongst uh, all those links based on some characteristics, which are like the port speed or the route metrics that the user provided. So what that does is it leverages all the available paths to the destination. And uh, what you end up is getting is the multiple throughput. So you get, uh, if there are, N interfaces, then you get N times the the initial throughput that you were getting. So that combined with the ECMP on the top of the rack router, so you can get your both incoming and outgoing traffic load balanced. That's one use case. So you get better performance, but you also get um, more efficient use of all those ports. You don't have any 100 gig Ethernet interfaces lying around not being used. Correct. Okay, excellent. 
So, Raj, what's the vision looking like for networking in general? Like, what are we trying to accomplish as a networking stack? I briefly alluded to this uh, earlier in my conversation. Uh, what I see is our vision spans from uh, simplifying network setup and configuration, providing modern REST API for management, uh, also exploiting the TCP congestion and flow control for different use cases, the front end, the inter-cluster inter and intra-cluster use cases, and also long distance use cases. And exploiting technologies such as uh, low latency, high throughput uh, storage protocols, uh, such as uh, RDMA, and also on the front end, NVMEO fabric protocols. Uh, and we're also looking into protocols uh, utilizing RDMA for, uh, for example, NFS or RDMA, right? Yep. Uh, uh, all the way from here to security for uh, cluster communication, whether it's inter-cluster or intra-cluster communication, using using TLS or IPsec, or both in some cases. Yeah, those fit very nicely into the cloud world, right? Cloud world, yeah. So uh, this is what I see as um, you know the framework of a vision uh, for next uh, few years, um, basically modernizing everything. Um, that goes along with the times that we are in right now. Excellent. So, you know, I would be remiss if I didn't go over, you know, some things that would be best practices or things to look out for when, when using ONTAP networking. So, um, Sonny, Matt, James, any advice on how to set up ONTAP networking in a way that is best uh, utilized in your environment? On the cluster network, our recommendation is to turn off priority flow control. Um, on other ports, uh, we don't have a general recommendation, mostly because it's environmental uh, environment dependent. Um, so we recommend if, for example, you, you have um, priority flow control set in certain portions of your environment to match whatever uh, settings you have. Uh, that's key for uh, both the cluster, um, the, the non-cluster ports, um, and again for the the uh, the cluster ports themselves, um, we recommend turning off uh, priority flow control. So, number one, do we do that automatically by default? Is that something you have to do as a storage administrator? And if we don't, why don't we? I mean, that would be a good best practice, right? To just automatically have cluster ports be off, but. Two, why would we want to have flow control off on the cluster interconnect? One of the reasons for that is going to be that uh, TCP congestion control already handles the back pressuring that you need. And so uh, it doesn't always play well with um, the Ethernet flow control. Uh, and then the other thing is that the Ethernet flow control can provide uh, head-of-line blocking. So if you have multiple flows, like in a fan-in kind of situation, you'd really like to have each of the TCP um, connections be throttling themselves independently, but with the Ethernet flow control, they're all going to be um, bottlenecked together. So that's just one of the reasons why um, we recommend not using it on the cluster. So we recommend it. Do we do we set it by default when you could do a cluster port? I mean, do we turn it off for you? I believe it's disabled by default, and you don't uh, need to consciously change that. All right, that's good, because that, that would make a lot of sense to do that. <laughs> yeah. So do, do you have, uh, um, this is a question to you, and then do you, yes. the best practices regarding mixer platforms? Because that's one thing which comes across in our conversations. So when you mix different platforms in a cluster, are there any best practices that we want to advocate? Uh, Sani? Uh, at the moment, actually, the, if I remember correctly, the, the only best practice that we recommend is to provision the cluster uh, when you have a mixed uh, platform cluster such that the yeah, at least your minimum uh, bandwidth or the aggregate bandwidth should match to, uh, to whatever your uh, targeted uh, bandwidth or performance that's there. So for example Actually, it is quite complicated because, you know, the, depending on what type of switch you use and how many ports are available, right? So, uh, they are, depending on, you know, whether you, your customer has enough number of ports available when you connect uh, kind of mismatched uh, bandwidth port together, you may have to give more 
port to the slow the 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 platform that has a slow port, right? Something like this. So, oh, I see. So basically, what you're saying is when you have different platforms of different power, basically more you yeah. know, bandwidth on some platforms than others. Um, if you have a mixed environment like that, and you have you know either lift failovers or you know lifts that live on every node. You could have unexpected performance on one node versus another node, and then you might not have you know what you the the balance of what you'd expect in a cluster, more or less, right? That, that's correct. Yeah, yeah. So so the best practice would basically be you know if you're going to have mixed platforms, make sure they all have the same bandwidth. Another way to look at it would be maybe don't use those lower end platforms for the same workloads if you have latency specific needs with the network. Yeah, that, that that's the best case, but you know it is not always possible to have you know this kind of exactly same bandwidth in and out, right? So the maybe the best practice that we can give is to minimize the mismatch between the in and out of yeah. pipe through the switch. Yeah, basically just have homogeneous throughput, more or less. So I think what what Sony's trying um, prior trying to phrase here, if you have ten gig ports. Platforms are 10 gig boards. Make sure that you match the back end so that you have the front end ports matching the bandwidth of the back end ports connecting to the Oh, okay. So, so you mean on the actual like data, like the servers versus the cluster? Correct, correct. Right, okay. There's, you know, just uh, two f- 10 gig front end interfaces. If you're expecting 20 gig uh, performance out of that box, then make sure that you have 20 gig at the back end. Right? Is is that what you're saying? Yes, yeah. yeah. Okay. And yeah, then so the uh, I wanna I wanna add to that uh, that you know the uh, so we have the the set of best practices that we have may change in future. For example, you know, as part of TCP congestion control work, we may come up with a, a new TCP congestion control algorithm that may handle this mismatched bandwidth better than other yeah, automatically for example so oh, okay. yeah. Yeah. then in maybe some of the best practices that we have may become not as important as it is today okay yeah. i think the caution is today's best practices hold but when we introduce new tcp congestion control algorithms those best practices may either render uh, invalid, or we will come up with a better best practice. Well, yeah, and I mean that's just the way IT works, right? I mean, Absolutely. things are always changing. Yeah. You got to yeah, yeah. kind of accommodate for that. Yeah. Um, that said, I mean, w- when we talked about BGP and VIP, it got me thinking a little bit. You know, where does LACP fit into all this? Does it still have a place? No, actually, BGP and um, VIP is for purely layer three networks. Okay, so you couldn't have an LACP. Port. You could have it, but general deployment, uh, the customer that will be using BGP and VIP will not have any any layer two dependencies as such. But you can still create a if group and host a VIP BGP lift on top of an if group. We, we do allow that. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I think we do allow that, but it's two overlapping your solutions, right, for the same problem. Yeah, but that's, that's what's kind of getting at. Right? Yeah, it yeah. doesn't fit anymore. Yeah, yeah, I would. You know, we we allow that, but I would stick with one domain. You know, either go load balancing based on layer two protocols or stick with layer three protocols if you're a legacy customer. Yep, absolutely. Okay. Anything else anyone wants to add that we maybe didn't cover? All right, some other best practices oh, that Jeff's we got some uh, could more. include if we've got time. We do, we uh, do. So um, one of the things that uh, I think is probably not well understood by a lot of customers but is uh, pretty important and pretty useful is broadcast domains. So um, you know, what a broadcast domain is, is if you send a packet out and you broadcast it, what are all the, the hosts that are going to hear it? That's your broadcast domain. All the ports that are plugged into a particular uh, layer two network uh, is your broadcast domain. And so that also tells you where you can fail over your lifts to um, if you're not using uh, the VIP feature. So these broadcast domains, uh, we added in, I think it was maybe 8.3, the ability to tell ONTAP which ports are in which broadcast domain, which then it, it, what it does is it helps the the cluster to keep the customer from 
having problems that, that creep in later. So at setup time, they can say these are the ports that are all connected together in a broadcast domain, and then they can forget about it. And ONTAP will make sure that things like the MTU matches on all those ports, which is required by RFC uh, and can lead to problems like uh, the black holes uh, for MTU mismatches that we talked about earlier. And then it can also solve problems where for lift failover, if you prior to broadcast domains, if you uh, had ports in a failover group that didn't have this uh, common connectivity because they weren't in the same L2 network, um, that wouldn't be noticed until a failover event which would then end up just resulting in a lift being unreachable and possibly uh, data not being served. So uh, the broadcast domain feature then helps with all those things, but it's important at the cluster setup time and anytime you're um, reconfiguring any ports to just uh, make sure that you've got that uh, configured correctly. And then one of the things that we're working on uh, for uh, an undisclosed release is the ability to automatically configure these uh, based on probing kind of techniques. So that way you get all the benefits of broadcast domains uh, without the overhead of trying to configure them. Uh, but for right now, the best practice is just to make sure that you do configure those correctly. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up broadcast domains. I forgot about them, and I think that most people have forgotten about them because most people don't really understand what they're for, but I'm glad you broke it down. Right, right, which is actually a lot of the motivation behind um, you know trying to get them auto-configured. Uh, so we acknowledge that, and that's one of the things that we're working on. Another best practice is uh, that we recommend using jumbo frames whenever possible. And the reason for that is because... Um, with Jumbo Frames, it allows you to send larger packets. So as long as the MTU of your network um, will support it and, and your switch equipment will support it, then uh, it's really better to send larger packets. Within um, ONTAP, most of the, the cost is going to be handling a packet, and it's not handling a certain number of bytes. So you know, six 1,500-byte packets, uh, would be required for a payload that could be accommodated with one 9,000-byte uh, MTU packet. So what the benefit is of using 9,000 over 1,500 is uh, you're using one-sixth of the CPU to process the same amount of data. Uh, so there's a lot of performance benefit to that. Is that for all workloads or just specific workloads? Most workloads. Okay. Any workloads you can think of that might not be good to use with jumbo frames off the top of your head? Um, some VPNs may not support uh, an MTU like that, and some older network equipment may also not support the larger MTUs. And so in those cases, um, you have to use the smaller, but when the equipment supports it, uh, you're almost always uh, benefiting from using the larger one. It also allows you to um, have better TCP performance because you can grow your window more quickly uh, since it's going to be um, sizing its window uh, relative to the size of the packets. So another uh, thing that uh, customers may want to know about is the IP FastPath feature, which we used to have um, and which goes away in the 9.2 release. Um, the IP FastPath feature used to remember which port a packet a request came in on, and it would try to send the response out the same port. Uh, and it would even remember which MAC address uh, the next hop was. Um, so it, it's generally not needed, but when a customer had a, a routing misconfiguration, the, the FastPath feature could actually hide that misconfiguration from them. And so it's important as customers upgrade to 9.2, uh, from an earlier release, that they make sure that they have their routing correctly configured. Uh, so the reason for that is if I uh, need to communicate off subnet, I would normally need a router. FastPath would hide the fact that uh, I don't have that router configured. So when you upgrade to 9.2, uh, something that previously worked would not. And it's not because something is broken now, it's because the routing misconfiguration wasn't noticed in the earlier release. Uh, and then 
the other thing that I'd like to mention about routing is uh, default gateways. So I think a lot of people don't understand really what, what to do with routing and how to, to correctly configure their routes. Again, uh, this can happen when uh, an organization has uh, independent storage administrators from their network administrators. And so the, the customer may be tempted to add uh, a default gateway uh, just to fill in a blank, say, and, and they may not really understand what it is. That's going to be a bad practice because uh, our network stack is going to use that route to try to send packets off subnet. And ONTAP supports having multiple default routes uh, for a number of different reasons, one of which is uh, that we support communications over multiple subnets at a time. So if you have a bad route in there, say one where uh, the gateway is non-existent or isn't actually a router, then there will be times when a route lookup is done, that route gets matched, and we try to send a packet to this thing that's not a router. And you can end up with, uh, again, hard to diagnose networking issues with that. So you really only want to use the default gateways when when you it's correct to do so and when you know that the uh, the gateway address you're putting in is in fact a router that has full connectivity. I'll speak from experience. I put default gateways in because I always have done it that way. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. And, exactly. and it might be a holdover from like old networking, like this is how you used to do it. Right. And sometimes, uh, you know, the blank is there to fill in, and, and so people feel compelled to fill it in, and uh, they just put in a number, uh, you know, 10.10.10.1. But if that 10.10.10.1 is not a gateway, uh, you could be worse off by filling it in. Absolutely. Um, and then uh, probably one final thing to mention is for the cluster peering feature. So we allow... Um, you know, multiple clusters to peer to each other. They can, um, you know, mirror data and metadata between them. You set up a peering relationship to do that. And we have a, a type of lift called an intercluster lift, which is used for this intercluster communication. And we have a requirement that all of the intercluster lifts on one cluster need to have connectivity to all of the intercluster lifts on the cluster that you're peering with. And that's so that at any moment, any one of those lifts can send a packet to any of the others. Um, that full mesh connectivity is uh, actually scoped per IP space. So if I want to peer to two different clusters, and those clusters don't have any common connectivity, there's like no way to route between one or the other, um, that can be a problem as you're trying to meet this full mesh uh, requirement for your intercluster lifts. So the way around that is starting in 831, we supported uh, the ability to use IP spaces to do your peering within. So if I want to peer with two different clusters, I can create a non-default IP space and put intercluster lifts in that non-default IP space to talk to one of the clusters that I'm peering with while my intercluster lifts talking to the other remote cluster could be in a different IP space. Maybe it's the default, maybe it's another non-default. Uh, and that allows you to kind of bucket your intercluster lifts uh, into an IP space that uh, is more or less dedicated for that peering purpose. And the, uh, the SVMs that you are uh, using if you're using uh, the the vServer peering or SVM peering feature on top of cluster peering, um, those SVMs don't need to be in the same IP space that these intercluster lifts are on. Their data can be um, transmitted uh, over this other IP space with these other intercluster lifts. But that's just a way to to kind of get around that full mesh requirement. Cool, good tips there. Uh, that is one common question we get a lot is, you know, how do I do the interclustering and get around the full mesh piece? And that's how you do it. All right. Well, that's about it. Uh, we've covered a lot of places in the networking piece here. Um, 
If you have anything that we didn't cover that you want to know about, you can reach us at podcast at netup.com, and I will make sure the appropriate parties are notified, um, and we'll get those questions answered, maybe even in a future podcast. And, of course, all the new features that you might have heard that sound exciting to you as they are released, we will have podcasts on them as well. So I'd like to thank Raj, Gurpreet, Matt, Sonny, James, and, of course, Jeff for joining us today. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you. All right, that music tells me it's time to go. If you'd like to get in touch with us, send us an email to podcast at netup.com or send us a tweet at netup. As always, if you'd like to subscribe, find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher or via techontappodcast.com. If you like the show today, leave us a review. On behalf of the entire Tech on Tap podcast team, I'd like to thank the Scale Out Networking team for joining us today. There were too many of them to list. As always, thanks for listening. Oh, yeah. Is it just me that's getting off on this? Oh, yeah.